Hello, and welcome to Great Exmentations. In this podcast, I dissect individual issues of Uncanny X-Men, and I explore what makes each issue great and what makes each issue not so great. You can find video versions with extra bonus content of all these episodes over at my YouTube channel or by going to my website, greatexmentations.com. In today's episode, I'm taking a look at Uncanny X-Men number 189. Let's go. Uncanny X-Men number 189 is titled Two Girls Out to Have Fun, and fun is most definitely an understatement. This issue was awesome. It features Rachel and Magma on a casual get-to-know-ya city tour of New York, where they're bonding with each other over their shared experiences, like coming from different worlds and being thrown into the modern-day 20th century. As it turns out, their similarities extend beyond just their recent New York arrivals as they end up encountering Celine during their day trip and both of them are thirsty for revenge against her. This is a great issue that focused on two characters who were very new to the comics at this time and it gave us a bit more depth to both of their histories and personalities. I don't think we ever really see Magma and Rachel team up again after this issue, so it kind of felt like an oddball pairing to me, but at the time of this issue's publication, it would have made a lot of sense to pair these two up. Even knowing all of their future stories that are yet to come and how the two of them don't ever really interact again, I still liked the pairing reading this issue, and I think that these two gals function really well as a duo. Of the two heroes, I'd say Rachel's star power grew much brighter than Magma's ever did, but since the two of them are still around in the comic books of today, I think a fun little miniseries featuring just these two babes would be such a cute book to read. I'm hard-pressed to ever diss a book that features Celine as the main antagonist, so I was fated to enjoy this issue from the get-go. But, my own biases aside, I do think that this issue functions really well just based on its own merit alone. I love any time the heroes exist and do things in natural environments, and they do that a lot in this book. The entire first half is spent at landmarks and at like a museum, and I mean the second half is just chock full of mutant action, which is of course what I mostly tune in for, so there's really no going wrong with any of it. I think it's a really fantastic, sort of standalone issue that does a great job of giving Rachel and Magma and Celine a spotlight and setting up the next arc with Kulan Goth. All in all, I just really, really loved it, and I have a lot to say about it, so let's get into it. Here are my highlights from Uncanny X-Men number 189. Rachel. Rachel was great in this issue. It was nice seeing her traipse around the modern-day New York City fairly carefree and with, like, a smile on her face. Up until this point, she's been pretty broody and has just been fretting a lot about the wrong timeline and the world that she came from, so it was nice to see her have a little bit of fun and, like, a YOLO moment and just enjoy life. I think it's great for her to see New York as a wholesome and thriving place instead of the desolate dystopia that it was in her reality. I mean, I don't know if New York can ever be really described as wholesome, but <laughs> you know what I mean. She thinks back to her own experiences of her own New York, and we get a peek into her life spent as one of the hounds. 
I really enjoyed reading about her past as a hound. I find the Hounds Project as an overall concept to be really creepy, and it makes my skin crawl just seeing it on the page, but I think it's great from a character trauma standpoint. I think that forcing mutants to track down their own kind to be killed all in the servitude of human masters is just so gross. But the grossest part is the way that Rachel is eager to please in these panels and be rewarded after the fact that she finds the mutant and the government agent decides to kill it. It's literally like she's acting just like a dog, hence the name Hounds, but it's so dehumanizing on every level. It just goes to show the high level of manipulation that went into creating and perfecting the Hounds program. After thinking back to these memories, Rachel feels a ton of guilt for the time that she spent forced to participate as a Hound, and even though she wasn't in her right mind whatsoever during those days, all those dead souls that she caused still weigh heavily on her conscience. Rachel's the one who senses Celine's thought patterns nearby, and she alerts Magma to the situation, not knowing about Magma's own history with Celine. Together, they follow her and infiltrate the Hellfire Club, where Celine is being nominated as Black Queen. They dress up as maids to keep themselves disguised, but I've gotta say, I don't think either of those uniforms really does the trick. I guess Rachel and Magma are both still relatively unknown to most of the X-Men's enemies at this point, and I mean, they're pretty new in the comics, so they're unknown to pretty much anyone, but maybe the idea here was just for them to blend in with the maids' costumes as opposed to actually disguise themselves and go undercover. There's really nothing about these costumes that conceal their identities. I don't know what their plan would have been if they happened to come across Celine in the hallways though, because she would most definitely have known them both on sight, and if she ever had the upper hand like that, then both of them would have been toast immediately. Anyway, they have some fun playing maid for a while, even though Rachel was a bit hesitant about putting on the uniform in the first place. It comes with a collar, and Rachel swore that she'd never be collared again after her time spent as a hound, but she quickly gets over that for the sake of the mission. I don't know if it's just me, but I'm kind of getting Amelia Bedelia vibes from these maid outfits. I know they're supposed to be sexy maids because that's like in line with the Hellfire costuming, but something about them just screams sexy Amelia Bedelia instead. <laughs> I actually thought it would have been pretty fun to see some of what Rachel and Magma got up to as maids in the club. It probably would have detracted from the momentum of the entire story though, so probably a good idea that they didn't take us on that little detour, but I'm still curious just based off how Rachel laughs about it, and I think it would have lent us some fun comedic moments. I think this is the first time that we ever really see her crack a smile, so it's really indicative that she's bound to enjoy her time spent now in the past, even if this isn't the correct timeline that she wanted to be there's still potential here for her to enjoy life, and that's what we want to see in her character. So I actually thought that Rachel and Magma were going to be hunting for Celine while in these maid outfits, and I was a little confused to see them doing actual maid work as opposed to watching them stock the halls looking for her, but it ends up being moot anyway because Celine is the one who does find them. I really like watching Celine and Rachel fight. Rachel is powerful, and Celine knows that, but... Rachel is also super untrained, which Celine also knows. I think she knows. She acts as though she knows. It just goes to show that even the most powerful people aren't always invincible. Celine tricks Rachel into hitting Magma with a psychic bolt by casting an illusion disguising Magma as herself, and then Rachel is subdued into slavery again by Celine's own psychic powers. 
This whole issue has thematically been about Rachel and her revulsion and fear and apprehension of ever living a life of servitude again. So her being manipulated back into that position where her mind isn't her own and that she's at the mercy of someone else again is literally the worst case scenario for her. Also, it's not lost on me that this scene happens after Rachel hesitated about putting on the serving maid collar. It's almost like she knew something like this might happen if she ever put on another collar again. And even though she put on the collar willingly, it's sort of like she was accepting the fact that something like this might happen. I think it was really great foreshadowing of her having an independent woman moment and putting herself in the position for this to happen to herself, all for the sake of the mission. Truly, the only way Rachel would ever be freed from her paralyzing fear of being used by other people again was for her to actually be used by someone else again, and then break free from that control by asserting her own free will and proving to herself that she's stronger than she thinks she is. And that's exactly what happens here. Celine induces a fantasy in Rachel where she's literally living in hell in her old hound's outfit, and she successfully controls Rachel for a little while. But Rachel quickly shakes off Celine's thrall, and then she helps Magma break out of it too. This was the perfect dramatic hook for Rachel to demonstrate how she's grown as a person, especially since we as readers don't really know anything about Rachel yet beyond the terrible things that have happened to her in the past. I think Rachel's battles with Magma and Celine here show us a lot about how strong Rachel is as a person. We already know that she's a formidable psychic, even though she hasn't really used those powers in a refined manner. They always seem to flare up and are out of control when she's stressed, so it was great watching her harness them in a somewhat more controlled manner. I'm not a big fan of Rachel, but I am a big fan of Rachel in this issue, and I definitely think it's one of her best ones. Magma. Magma is a hard character to really get into. She doesn't have a ton of great stories over her tenure as a Marvel character, which is surprising given that she's been around for a long time, but I don't really think it's her fault. She just hasn't been explored a lot from a character development side. She's had a few interesting arcs over the years, like her time spent with the new Hellions when she was attacking X-Force, and her romance with Mephisto later on when she was with the New Mutants again, but overall, she hasn't really had the same level of impact in the X-Universe that most of her other teammates have. I think that of all of the New Mutants who were enrolled at Xavier's around this time, Magma is the only character who still feels underdeveloped to me and like she could use some extra attention even after all these years. I do like Magma, and I think her powers are cool and that she has awesome potential, but I just wish that I knew more about her or that there were some more ups and downs in her character arcs. This issue of Uncanny X-Men number 189 might actually be one of Magma's best issues ever. It's got a personal character story for her, and it shows just how intimidating she can really be when she unleashes the full extent of her mutant abilities. She ends up leveling the New York City streets that's just outside the Hellfire Club without even meaning to. Her powers operate on like a thermodynamic level, and they come straight from the Earth's core, so if she doesn't exercise at least some level of finesse or control or restraint, then the results of her powers can be really quite devastating. I love watching how bloodthirsty Magma is when she and Rachel are hunting Selene. 
Rachel wants revenge against Celine for having attacked her in New York a couple issues ago, but Magma's vengeance is far more personal. Celine was the high priestess of Magma's home in Nova Roma, and she killed Magma's mother and almost killed Magma too. This entire issue is essentially building up to a grudge match between her and Celine, and it's super fun and rewarding to watch it unfold. Magma's vengeance is what drives a lot of this story forward. It's her idea to go on the hunt for Celine, and it's her idea to infiltrate the Hellfire Club disguised as maids. In a way, it's kind of Magma's fault that she and Rachel end up getting captured by Celine at all. Vengeance has a cruel way of making people blind to the obvious, and Magma was so laser-focused on getting back at Celine that she didn't think to realize the danger she was putting herself and Rachel in. The flaws in her lack of a plan were obvious from the moment she suggested wearing the maid non-disguise, and it takes her life being endangered for her to realize it. Magma ends up falling victim to Celine's psychic influence, and unlike Rachel, Magma doesn't have the same psychic guards or astral experience to be able to protect herself from a telepathic attack. Magma is under the illusion that she's back in Nova Roma and she's worshipping the High Priestess Celine again. She attacks Rachel as an intruder, and it takes a lot of physical and mental persuasion from Rachel to calm Magma back down and break her out of this funk. Magma does eventually shatter the illusion and breaks free and goes to kill Celine, but like Rachel, Magma's super untrained in her abilities, so her recklessness not only imperils Celine's life, but also her own life and the lives of everybody around her. Eventually the X-Men show up though, and they stop her from doing something that she'd surely regret. Even though Professor Xavier scolds her for even thinking about killing Celine, I really like seeing that fiery passion within Magma. I like that it makes her come across as though she's not just another demure pretty face. She comes from a land where death and sacrifices and stuff were more transactional and traditional and accepted than they are here in New York, so it's really interesting watching her have to adapt as a new immigrant to the social standards and human decorum that Xavier expects of his students, like not killing people. Death is just not something that the X-Men dish out unless it's something that's happening to them themselves. By the end of the issue, Magma sees the destruction that her one-track mind has wrought onto the city, and although she regrets it, she ultimately feels unachieved. She thinks that for all of their struggle on this day, something should have come from it, and to her, that something of course should have been Celine's death. Even though killing is not what the X-Men do, and Magma understands and accepts that, I get the sense that she's still going against her better judgment here, and she's just following Xavier's say-so out of respect for him. There's still a part of her that wants to kill Celine, and I bet that if she ever gets the chance again without Xavier or the X-Men around to stop her, she's definitely gonna take it. Celine. Oh my god, what a babe. Celine continues to establish her ground as an awesome and impressive villainess for the X-Men. She's always one step ahead of the dynamic duo of Rachel and Magma in this issue, and when the time comes, she demonstrates again just how powerful she can really be. The amount of power that she showcases in this issue is amazing. She uses her psychic persuasions to compel Rachel and Magma into servitude. She uses sorcery to cast an illusion and trick Rachel into thinking that she's Psy-blasts her when really she's Psy-blasts Magma. 
She uses some kind of momentary hypnosis on Tessa and Sebastian Shaw to make it seem like she teleports away. She shows that she's got some superhuman strength the way she picks Rachel up off the ground by merely grabbing her with her one hand. And then, of course, my favorite aspect of Celine's power is her control over inanimate objects and when she uses the concrete of the Hellfire Club's floor to grab people. It's all just like a really, really impressive list of powers. And even though it harkens on her being too powerful and thus potentially unbeatable and thus potentially boring, I think Marvel does a good job of balancing these out with her own limitations and ego. Tessa goes out of her way to say that Celine can't actually teleport. And even though Celine wanted to make it seem as though she could, it's just a testament as to Celine trying to show to be something that she's not. It's like she's overcompensating for her lack of ability to teleport and trying to make her seem even more powerful than she already is. She's resorting to tricks to get even more ahead in the eyes of others. And usually when people focus on trying to be too impressive, they lose sight of what's in front of them and it ends up being their downfall. In this instance, Celine is boasting her power set to impress Sebastian Shaw in order to successfully be inducted to the Hellfire Club as their new Black Queen. She's pulling out all the stops to show him how much of an asset she could be, and it's totally working. Shaw gets it. She's good. Almost too good. Celine trying to trick Shaw and Tessa with the teleportation glamour gives us an indicator of what her personality is like. Even though she's already impressive enough, she's always seeking more power, and specifically power that isn't already hers. This is something that is explored time and time again with her character, like when she tries to kill all of the externals to drain their powers for herself, and when she tries to harness the power of a celestial gatherer, and then of course when she tries to become a goddess during Necrotia. It's even explored in this issue when she tries to seek total control of the Hellfire Club before even being inducted as a member. The idea of always acquiring more power is the biggest driving force that is central to Celine's character, and it informs all of the decisions that she ever makes. And when it's exploited, it also informs all of her defeats as well. I just think that Celine is so badass in this issue. I love her snarky, fake subservience to Sebastian. She butters him up in a totally passive-aggressive way, and it's incredibly clear in her subtext and her body language that she's only here to take control of the club for herself. Celine being inducted into the Hellfire Club is something that just feels so natural anyway. She's a lady who knows what she wants, and she wastes no time in going out to get it. I kind of wonder if she lured Rachel and Meg into the club on purpose in order to better her chances of impressing Shaw with her abilities. There's a scene of Celine in the limo as she's driving past the museum where Rachel first senses her thought patterns, and it looks like Celine is well aware that the mutants have noticed her and they intend to follow. I would not be surprised in the slightest if Celine had set this whole thing up from the beginning. I feel like she might have given Rachel a bit of a psychic nudge to notice her presence, and maybe even implanted the very suggestion within them to follow her. Magma's blood boils just at the very mention of Celine's name, so it wouldn't have taken much at all in terms of a psychic suggestion to put them onto her trail. It all just seems really convenient at the club after Celine disappears to fetch Shaw his gift. 
She obviously knows that Rachel and Magma are there, and she doesn't seem surprised by them having followed her in the least. So I think the whole thing was actually a trap that she set. Celine set up Rachel and Magma to be captured, not because she sees them as a threat to her, nor does she really care for them to be eliminated, but instead she wants to use them as bait for her nomination into the club. She knew that these two mutants would be an impressive catch, and Tessa confirms as much to Shaw when she senses Rachel's psi potential. I love the idea that Rachel and Magma's driving forces in this issue is to reap revenge against Celine, but that Celine doesn't really give two hoots about them. She just wants control of this club, and she'll use both of these two people to get it. It's just more salt to the wound for Magma. She's so wrapped up in Celine this, Celine that, but to Celine, <laughs> Magma could have been any old mutant, and this rivalry that Magma has envisioned for them doesn't really mean squat to Celine. That's just how good Celine is at prioritizing the important from the unimportant. And like all of Marvel's writers, Celine has placed Magma in the unimportant list. Overall, there's no denying how freaking awesome Celine was in this issue, and it's definitely one of her best. A must read for any Celine fan out there. Sebastian Shaw and Tessa. This issue marks the beginning of the Shaw and Celine power struggle for control of the club, and it's obvious right from the get-go that Celine is looking to usurp him. I think her display of power against Shaw at the very beginning is the closest these two ever actually come to blows, though. Their rivalry is like a sophisticated one, and their machinations against each other are always done as subterfuge or some sort of cunning trickery. They both know that they each boast impressive power sets, but they prefer to use mind games with each other over physical altercations, and their egos won't let them degrade themselves enough to actually hit the other person when something like public humiliation is so much more appealing. Shaw accepts Celine as his black queen after this issue, not because he likes her, but because he respects her power level. He can see the value that she would bring to the club overall, and even though Tessa advises him against letting her in, he knows that when it comes to power, there's ever the slightest chance that Celine could maybe get the better of him if she decided to force her way into the club. So accepting her as the new Black Queen is the easiest and safest way to keep an eye on her. It's kind of like a keep your friends close and your frenemies closer situation. I love Tessa for not trusting Celine. The two of them have never been on good terms with each other, and that dynamic continues throughout their subsequent appearances together too. Tessa knows that Celine is bad news, and I love watching her urge Sebastian to destroy Celine after he's offered Rachel and Magma as gifts. I also quite enjoy Tessa's dynamic with Shaw here. Sebastian is Black King and Lord Imperial of the Hellfire Club, and Tessa is his trusted advisor and first-hand woman. It's strictly business between these two, and Tessa tells him only the facts of what he needs to know about situations in order to make informed decisions. Tessa is later retconned into becoming Sage of the X-Men, and it turns out that she was an agent of Xavier all this time while she's at the Hellfire Club, but all of that aside, I think that Shaw and Tessa have actually one of the healthiest relationships in comics. It's based on mutual respect, and even though Shaw is technically Tessa's master in terms of the Hellfire hierarchy or whatever, it feels like he honestly cares and values about her opinions and her analyses and how she advises him in courses of actions to take. 
I know this whole relationship between the two of them goes out the window later, but for now anyway, it's one that I find really enjoyable, and I like that it's based on two people achieving common goals without any kind of romantic underlying emotion. Storm Storm is only in this issue for a few panels, and they're all very sad. Since she's now powerless, she feels like she can't be of any use to the X-Men, and so she's taking her leave of them. She's aboard a big ship that's going to take her to Africa, where she's going to visit for a bit and rebuild her life. The team are here throwing her a farewell party of sorts, and although everyone's smiling and enjoying their time, it's obvious that everyone is also very upset. I do not agree with Storm deciding to leave like this, but I am happy that she's not moping around about losing her powers. She's always been about moving forward, and even though this certainly isn't how she saw her life going at all, she's not about to let being powerless stop her from living. I also gotta respect that she's living her truth. She feels like she doesn't have a place with the X-Men, and she refuses to become a burden to them. I don't think that the others would ever see her in that light, and Xavier tells her as much when he urges her to reconsider her decision, but it's not about what the X-Men think of her right now. It's about how she feels about herself and about her forging the path that she needs to take for herself. Her spirits are high, if not tinged with sadness to be leaving her friends, but she's excited about what may come from this new journey. It sucks anytime Storm isn't a member of the main team. She's such a great character to have around, so her leaving is not only a blow to the membership ranks, but also a terrible loss to us as readers as well. I think something I'm most disappointed in is that we never get the chance to see Storm and Xavier really butt heads about team leadership. There were hints about them getting into it, like when Xavier talked over Storm and gave orders to the team during their fight with the dragon in Tokyo, or when he led the charge instead of her to rescue Rachel from Celine during her first attack in New York a few issues ago, but we never ever got to see Storm really lay into him about how she's the field leader. That was awkward tension between these two that I was really hoping we get to see more of, and it's a shame it didn't amount to anything or at least didn't amount to anything yet. I hold out hope that some sort of feud might still materialize in later issues, but for now, I guess we have to bid adieu to our Mistress of the Elements, and I'm very sorry to see her go. Kulan Gath Kulan Gath is freed in this issue. He's been manipulating the fisherman from his blue gem necklace imprisonment the past couple of issues, but it hasn't totally been going his way. He's been trying to convince them to become his slaves with the promise of riches and glory and the world and yada yada, the usual genie-in-a-bottle routine, but they haven't readily been agreeing with him. He must be losing his touch, because usually it's not this hard to tempt men with murder and greed in their hearts. The main fisherman who found the gem manages to hold off and resist Kulan Goth's temptations pretty much for the entire duration that he has the necklace. It's actually quite a great testament to the human spirit. It can't be any small feat to have your will circumvent around the imposing will of a great sorcerer. Unfortunately for our human hero fisherman though, things don't really turn out so well for him. He ends up getting stabbed in the subway, and the ruffian who commits the stabbing takes the necklace for himself, checking off the boxes of both murder as well as greed that are needed for Kulan Goth to be freed. 
the ruffian as well as the subway station burst up into flame and Kulan Goth announces that he's about to grace us with his almighty presence once more. Up to this point, we don't really know anything about him beyond the fact that he's been stuck in this necklace, but it's obvious that he's diabolical and powerful, so it will be exciting to see what comes out with him in the next issue. Fashion. This issue, I'm highlighting Rachel's psychic garment that she ends up wearing after Celine enchants her mind. I think it's supposed to be some sort of mix of her hound wear meets Hellfire Club aesthetic, but it's also got a touch of superheroine there with that sash belt tied around her waist. So it's all really, really fun. The mask makes this costume look very COVID friendly, and it actually kind of reminds me of her upcoming Hellfire Gala outfit too. Maybe there was some secret inspiration there with the muzzle idea. Was this supposed to be like a test drive as a costume for Rachel? She doesn't have an official costume yet in these issues, and actually she isn't even really part of the main team yet, so I guess why would she have a costume? But I wonder if this was Marvel kind of testing out the waters of something that Rachel might end up wearing just to gauge fan reaction. It's a little bit brazen and skimpy and not much to it in terms of personality, but I really don't mind it. Simple though it may be, I also think it's kind of exciting. I wouldn't be mad at all if this little number somehow made its way back into her wardrobe rotation, and I'd love to see what a 2021 rendering of it would actually look like. For men's fashion, I've got to highlight Nightcrawler's goodbye wear. He's so fun, decked out in the top hat and the bow tie while he pops the champagne. It's the right balance of whimsy and formality, and I just think he looks downright dapper. Ads. This issue, I'm highlighting the bonkers fruit candy ad. What the heck is this supposed to be? Is it like some sort of gushers candy with a juicy center? It reminds me a lot of Hubba Bubba Gum, just based on its kind of square design with that dark colored center. And I get the sense that it is supposed to be some sort of gum-like thing, based on what one of these kids in the ad says. Fruity, chewy outside, super fruity inside. <laughs> with that description, me and Bonkers have some of those traits in common, so I already feel like this is the candy for me. It comes in three fruity flavors, like grape, orange, and strawberry, and this ad really sells the fact that this candy tastes fruity. I count the word fruit or some derivative of it being used no less than five times in this one ad alone, but never once does it say that it's made with real fruit flavors. So I'm thinking that they're just trying to hypnotize and overstimulate me with the word fruit so that I'll just accept that it's real without them having to lie about it. I think that these drawings of all these people are just really lovely, and that school mom or whatever she is that's in the middle is a total delight, and I love that they use the word bonk over and over again as a verb too. If this candy is ridiculous enough for that lady, then it's ridiculous enough for me, and I want it. X-Mail X-Mail is back, but it looks like it is finally the end for characters answering the letters themselves. It was fun while it lasted, but there are only so many characters on the team, and they're all so busy saving the world anyway, so it's back to the editorial staff answering the fan mail. 
This issue, I'm highlighting a letter from Rick Moe of Conroe, Texas. He has provided the ex-office with a simple itemized list about Rogue. He thinks she's sexy, she can fly, she's sexy, she's not 14, I think that's a dig at Kitty, she helps the X-Men, she's sexy, she saved Peter's life, she doesn't have a mohawk, and I know that's a dig at Storm, and finally, that she's sexy. <laughs> I take it that Rick is a big fan of Rogue, and thank goodness she wasn't the one answering this fan mail letter, because then she might just have had to take out a restraining order against him. Put down the comics and get yourself outside, Rick. <laughs> Well, that's it for this issue. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to explore around my channel for more of these reviews, or check out any of my other social media accounts for a varied assortment of X content. Videos, blog posts, panel scans, art, and more can also be found at my website, greatexmentations.com. Thanks again for stopping by today, and be sure to come back soon for more Great Xmentations.